Uh, so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's always a, a privilege to speak somewhere else because um, you get to speak God's word into people's lives, which is great. So thanks for having me. I heard Chase is a church that brings their Bibles and takes notes. And, is that right? Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Do you want to jump um, in with me at Luke? Good job. And you're on the front row. Extra points. Uh, Luke 14, we're going to start at today. Just beforehand, I just wanted to share, when we were in time of worship, I really felt like God was saying that. Um, maybe there's someone here who's um, had, a tough, had a tough week and um, it feels like they're far from God. And I just felt like God, he was restricting worship, restricting praise. And I just feel like God wants to release you from that. So if that's you, um, please don't leave this place without someone praying for you. Um, so you can be fully released into all that God has for you as you move into the rest of the week, right? Cool. But let's jump into Luke. So Luke 14, starting at verse 1. It says this, On the Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was carefully watched. When he noticed, uh, this is skipping to verse 7, sorry. When he noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the table, he told them a parable. He said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host will, will invite, who invited both of you will come and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you have to take the place of least importance. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. Sorry, I should have said verse 1 and then move into verse 7. I love this passage. Um, it's a great passage, and I think it's one that's so relevant. Although it might not um, immediately appear so. Who knows that inflated egos are not a modern thing. And this passage reveals much about our hearts, right? So let's just ground ourselves. Where are we? So it says, verse 1, On the Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees uh, were an influential sect of Judaism at the time of Jesus, and at the risk of oversimplifying it, but for the sake of time, generally, the Pharisees were known for strictly observing the law of Moses. Right, as found in the Torah, particularly rituals around ceremonial purification and stuff like that. And they also held to the oral traditions, which have been passed down through the generation as believed to be um, passed down by Moses. And so they gave equal weight to the law of God as written and also to these oral um, traditions. And this all added up to an emphasis on personal piety, right? Upholding one's own holiness. God's greatest desire, and this is true, God's greatest desire for you, for me, and for everyone who knows and loves him is that we would become holy like he's holy. That's what he wants for our lives. That's his mission. But as we learn from the words of Jesus, um, for the Pharisees, this often meant and often came at the expense of more important matters of the law. Upholding their own holiness, sorry, come at the expense of justice and mercy and faithfulness, neglecting good for the sake of human traditions. And because of, let me just say this as well, because of Jesus' strong criticism of such people, we tend to think of the Pharisees in a negative light, 
We use them in, as an example. Um, but actually, it might surprise you that they actually found favor among the people at the time. People looked to them as uh, you know, good, godly people, but they were very suspicious of Jesus. So verse 1, as it says, the text says that he was being watched carefully. Jesus has been watched carefully because he'd started to make a name for himself. His teachings challenged the social, political, religious systems of the time as they still do today. And for the Pharisees, Jesus represented a real threat to true Judaism, right? as they saw it anyway. And an unwanted attention from the occupying forces of the Roman Empire. And it's interesting to me that Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. So verse 7, if you're still following with me, it says that he noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table. Because for the Pharisees, their outward show of propriety, their religiousness, it gave them, it put them ahead. It gave them better social standing in the community. And this is best seen in the context of social gatherings. So I gave a message recently at EV about true love, where we explored what it looks like to love Jesus. And we looked particularly at uh, the Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples in the upper room the night he's betrayed. We call it the Last Supper. And we specifically looked at the seating arrangement in this message because we cover like fun, functional, practical themes at EV, like seating. (laughs) And so you might recognize this picture, um, Leonardo da Vinci's famous depiction of the Last Supper. But it wouldn't have looked anything like this. I'm guessing uh, good old Leo did this so you could see everyone. It would have probably looked more like this. They would have been seated in a triclinium. So this horseshoe shape, it's called a triclinium. It's a three-sided table, low to the ground, and they would have laid on cushions, eating and drinking, leaning on one side, a bit like the picture you see. And the host would have been sat at the table, so there's a more simplified version of this as well. So the host would have been sat at the head of the table, um, which would have been on the left. And these are the places of most importance. And then on the other side, on the right, these are the spe- um, for the least honored guests on the right. And as we looked at this during, uh, so the spaces, sorry, to the left and right of the host would be the most honored guests. Right? And we looked in that message about who was seated in those places, which is really interesting, but is another message. And you'll have to invite me back if you want to hear about that. <laughs> But the closer, you get the point, the closer you're seated to the host, the more important you were. It was a sign of your social status, right? Now, this isn't a million miles from how we think and act today. Most of us are very aware when we walk in a room that where we sit um, and our placement, what it says about us, particularly if we're new to somewhere. Hence the question, where should I sit? I think I asked that when I walked in this morning. Where should I sit? Or where would you like me to sit? Think about small children for a second. Beth, my wife, is, um, was a, when she came to work at a previous church we're at, she worked in the nursery, and she'd often come home and tell me that the kids, they just want to sit on the lap of the teacher. They want to be in close proximity to the person who's leading during any activity, leaning right into your face, right? Not, um, the opposite seems to happen at comedy events, though, right? And at church, most of the time. Our front rows are always empty. <laughs> the desire not to be picked on, I, I assume it is. 
And here is Jesus using a wedding, which is a great example for us because most of us have been to a wedding or at least know how weddings function. We were at a wedding yesterday. Best sister um, got married yesterday, which was great. And like most weddings, there was a top table where you have the bride and the groom and their family, perhaps the best man, the maid of honor, and then the tables filter down, right? And the closer you are to the top table, the more important people assume they are to the couple. <laughs> assume. Has anyone seen, uh, there's a film called Table 19. Has anyone seen this film? No. Uh, it's got Anna Kendrick, Stephen Merchant, and Lisa Kudrow, who's Phoebe from Friends. And uh, the leftovers, indeed. So this is the film. There's a, uh, the, the film is about a wedding, and um, obviously, and the table um, 19 is the table closest to the toilets. Right? <laughs> and it's the table, it says in the film, the table that should have known to send regrets when RSVPing, the table that could disappear halfway through the wedding and no one would notice. See, weddings, they do a great job of revealing our hearts. So in the film, the first nan, she calls herself, is in disbelief that she could be on the duff table. And it makes me wonder, if there was no seating, where would we be inclined to sit? How would we see ourselves? How we see ourselves is not always the way others view us. But when Jesus says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honour. These are the words of Jesus. See, the analogy is of a wedding, but the application is for everyday life. It's countercultural, challenges our egos. And notice something that's important. Jesus doesn't take issue with honouring particular guests. It's a cultural given. His point is that honour is not to be seized, it's to be awarded. It's a question of character and of attitude. In fact, Proverbs 18.12 says, humility comes before honour. So everyone who, honors, uh, who, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility, then, is a mark of following Jesus. Paul goes on to say, he says, as God's chosen people, we are to be clo- we'll clothe ourselves in compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, and humility. Humility is not thinking too highly of yourself. And it's important to get this right. And I want to clarify two things straight off the bat. Right? One, there's nothing devaluing about humility. It isn't about thinking less of yourself, rather just thinking of yourself less. You are of great value to God. So much so that he became like us. He was born into this world, he lived amongst us, and he gave his life so we can share in his. Paul says in Romans 5.10 that while we were enemies of God, that is living as though he doesn't exist and cursing him with the very breath he put in our lungs, he was on a mission to restore us to himself. Before you ever did a thing, regardless of anything you've ever done, that was his plan. And you're, you're of great value to God. And the truth is in the tension that we have absolutely nothing to offer God. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. And he loves those who are his with a furious love. Second thing is this that I want to just make clear. Humility doesn't mean being ashamed of your gifting or doubting your abilities. If you're good at something, then praise God. We often think of worship as sung worship. um, But our true worship is an outworking of our entire lives. All that we have, all that we are, surrendered to God. 
in loving, faithful obedience. And as we follow Jesus, we begin to understand more and more what that, looked like, what that looks like. So when you use your gifts and your talents in good, godly ways, we bring him glory. Boasting is excluded because every per- good and perfect gift comes from him anyway. So humility doesn't hide talent, but it celebrates it for the glory of God. I think the key is this. Ultimately, humility is a shift from being self-centered to being Jesus-centered. And there's a, dis- there's a distinction here that you have to get. Right? If we're Jesus-centered, then we'll be others-orientated because God is compassionate and he's on a mission to reach people. It isn't about being others-centered because if, you, if you're others-centered, you'll get burnt out and it will lead to self-neglect. But if we're Jesus-centered... He'll fill us and we'll be able to reach other people. So it's a shift from being self-centered to Jesus-centered. So look to Jesus. First seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added as well. True humility then is recognizing the infinite worth of God who is awesome and beyond anything and everything we can imagine and just how small we are in comparison. Friends, it's just not about you. It's not about me. It's all about him. And selfism, unfortunately, is a lifestyle. It's a trend. It's the fastest growing religion. The sad thing is that it's rife in the church. It's rife in the church. Selfism dressed up as Christianity where it's all about me and what God can do for me and building my own kingdom and making myself comfortable where we use blessing as an excuse for, over, for excess and overindulgence. But Jesus said, if anyone is to come after me, they must take up their cross. If you want a crown, take up your cross. If you want to share in his glory, then you're going to have to share in his sufferings. It's Romans 8, 17. Surrender isn't about a spirit of poverty, though. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to have desires and dreams and ambitions. And it's certainly not about rejecting God's blessing in our lives. But it's a question of lordship. Are you pursuing Jesus? Are you serving Jesus? Or are you just serving yourself? Paul said a time is coming when people will only listen to what their itching ears want to hear, what suits their needs and their views, and what's easiest for me. And so we never, um, we're never allowed to be challenged because we become offended. And there's a word for that. It's called immaturity. And when God challenges our lifestyle, if rather than working through it, we look to, for people who say and do and teach what fits our agenda, then we worship a God of our own making. And there's a word for that too. It's called idol worship. So when God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, he asked, if, these, if the people ask me who you are and what your name is, what shall I tell them? And what God doesn't say is, oh, you decide. He says, no, tell them I am who I am or I will be what I will be. In other words, you're not going to define me. I'm going to show you who I am. And he spends the rest of that journey, the Exodus story and the rest of scripture, and most clearly in the person of Jesus, the fullness of God in man, showing us what he's like, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. The one who says, follow me and I'm going to give you life and a future, a family to belong to, a father who will fight for you. Forgiveness you could never earn, hope that never fails, love that's relentless, strength when you're weak, peace in distress, and courage in the face of fear. Friends, <laughs> it's not about you. It's all about him. And in him we find the best version of ourselves because he created us to be more than we could ever be and greater than we could ever imagine. But 
It starts with surrender. And surrender requires humility. And remember, what does scripture say? Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the reason it's so important to work on being humble is because it's so easy to be arrogant. It's so easy to believe that we are more deserving, more important than someone else. And most of the time, it's really subtle. Um, And we're not even aware we're doing it. Like queue jumping. Stealing. Leaving rubbish on your table at McDonald's so that someone else has to clear it up. Maybe you don't go to McDonald's because you're good, but... What are these things if they're not entitlement? They're small things in the grand scheme, but they're entitlement. They're arrogance. So I want to leave you three points that we can remember together. How do we walk humbly before the Lord and each other? First, we have to remember to fear God. Proverbs 22.4 says that humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are, uh, are, rich, are riches and honor in life. You know, scripture frequently reminds us to fear the Lord. In fact, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that those who fear the Lord are blessed because it leads to life and true rest. I think sometimes we're over-familiar with God. Like, yes, he's my loving father. And he calls me friend and his mercies are new every day. Hallelujah. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I've said God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in loving, uh, loving, loyal love and faithfulness. But he's also a holy God. A God who hates wickedness and injustice. A righteous judge who, judge who is compelled to deal with the issue of sin. And knowing God is judge of all the earth is a sombering realisation. Because who is good but God alone? Who can stand blameless before the Lord Almighty? Who rules the world with righteousness and judges the people with equity? The one whom nothing is hidden from. To fear God is to understand that God hates sin. He hates sin. And you can only appreciate just how gracious and merciful God is when you understand what He's won for us in Christ, what He has rescued us from, and how much we've been forgiven. That's why Jesus says in Luke 7, He says, Those who've been forgiven little love little. Because how can you begin to comprehend the furious love of a holy God? without confronting the, the cross of Christ and the ugliness of sin. I think fearing God is a deep, is to have a deep appreciation and awe for the utter uniqueness of God. Isaiah says, uh, in Isaiah, God says, who is like me? I'm the first and the last. There's no one before me and there's no one after. If anyone's like me, stand up. Declare it. Is, is there any God but me? He finishes with you know, God is this unchallengeable, unchanging, everlasting being who is far beyond anything we could ever comprehend. In need of no, nothing and nobody. Holy, righteous, just, utterly perfect and completely good. He's in a category all of his own. He's totally incomparable with anyone or anything else. And the problem is this, and don't misunderstand me. We make the mistake of thinking God is like us, and he is not like us. We were created to be like him, but he's not like us. He's just other. 
Surely the only appropriate response to a God like this is fear in the face of his power and majesty and splendor. And it's not because he's trying to make us afraid. It's, it's, it's just a reflex. It's a natural reaction to the res- a response to his presence. Anytime someone encounters the Lord in Scripture, they're afraid. But the wonderful thing is this. If we fear the Lord, and, and it's sensible to fear the Lord, right? he's the one who gives life and he takes it away. And of course, we should fear God um, once we understand that about him. But once you get to that point, once we realize that, we know there's nothing left to fear. Because if God is for us, who can stand against us? That's why often when people encounter him, he says, do not be afraid. We should fear God, but we do not need to be afraid. And I think genuine fear leads to fearlessness. And if we want to see, build, and create a, um, a fearless generation, then it starts with fearing the Lord. So again, Proverbs 22.4 says, the humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. So remember to fear the Lord. Secondly, remember it's God who exalts. Thinking of Genesis 11. So we know the story of the Tower of Babel, Babel, whatever you want to call it. And the people want to make a name for themselves. So they band together and they build this tower to reach the heavens. And God comes down and he... um, disperses them and their plans are futile and in the very next chapter God um, reveals himself to this man Abraham and God says I'm going to make your name great and through you all nations are going to be blessed you see the contrast people try and make a name for themselves and it's unfruitful but God says I'm the one who's going to make your name great blessing comes from God Self-exaltation is unfruitful and it leads to shame, but humility brings honor. So humble yourself before the Lord and he'll lift you up. It's God who exalts. Thirdly and lastly, remember who you are in Christ. This is an issue of identity. I'm just thinking of um, John 13 where, I think I've got the verse actually. Let me just read this verse. So John 13 after they've eaten together at the Passover meal, um, Jesus stands up, he wraps a towel around himself, and one by one he washes the disciples' feet. And again, it's a different message, but he's doing the job culturally of a servant or a slave. And it says this, verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He says, I've set uh, set an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. What's the key here? Jesus wasn't afraid to become like a servant because he was confident of his identity. Notice what it says. After he finished, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Friends, if we're unsure of our identity, we'll be fearful of losing our place or fearful of losing our position. And Jesus wasn't afraid because he knew who he was. He knew his place at the right hand of the, of the Father. You know, if you love the Lord, if you know and love the Lord, you're his treasured possession, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So don't be afraid to move. <laughs> don't be afraid to move. You'll return to your place. He's preparing a place for you. 
we have to be careful as Christians not to cling too tightly to our position, our job, our income, our traditions, even our culture, our friends, our possessions, even our dreams and desires. First, we have to cling to Christ and be found in him. Because in him is life, <laughs> life in all his fullness. I want to finish with this. John the Baptist says this. He says, I must decrease that you may increase. Surely that has to be our prayer. Right? Less of me, more of you, Lord. So that as people um, witness our lives and they see his goodness, his grace, his mercy and his love, they might receive the gospel for themselves, turn to God and believe. Humble surrender is what God is calling us to. It's the importance of having a humble heart. So I don't know where you're at today. Obviously, I don't know most of you. Getting to know you. But I wonder what God is saying to you this morning. Maybe you need a deeper revelation of your identity in Jesus. To know that you are anyone who is in the Lord is a child of God. Forgiven, accepted, he'll never leave you or forsake you. Scripture says that he rejoices over us. We're singing. Or maybe you need a fresh revelation of God's nature. Maybe you've never thought that, you know, it's a command to fear the Lord. And it's not that God is not loving. I'm not going to repeat it. But it's wise to fear God because he's powerful and he is awesome. But then in God, there's nothing to fear. We don't have to be afraid. Or maybe you just need to surrender afresh to God. God has so much for you guys and you as a church. And um, not just because you're down the road for us and I like you guys, but because I know the promises of God for his people. Right. <laughs> Should we pray? Yeah. Stand with me if you're um, willing and able. I'd just like to spend a bit of time just lifting our voices to God. And um, let me just pray as we do that. Father God, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that it's trustworthy, it's true. And Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you are our greatest encourager and our friend. And Lord, we look to you and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just come amongst us. Lord, you reveal to us in our hearts, Lord, the places that we need to surrender to you. Lord, we cannot do this without you. And we want to surrender it, Lord, so we have space for all that you have for us. Life and life in all its fullness. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Let's just, let's just pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord Jesus.
know, if that's you and you feel like, um, I've just got this real sense that there is like a, a call to repentance, just to say, you know what, God, I, I know I've not been in the best place with you, but I want to be in that place and I want to surrender it all to you. And um, if that's you, I just want to ask you to be brave and come forward and we'd love to pray for you. Or if you're not in that place, maybe you want to just raise your hand and someone will come over and pray with you. But I would encourage you not to, um, there's no missed opportunities in the kingdom of God, but I'd encourage you to step into that place now. Um, We'd love to pray for you.